0: Today I am joined by my old friend, Anna Broadway. Uh, We were friends back in New York City, I guess in the 2000s, and uh, a little bit bleeding into the 2010s, I guess, or maybe not even when we last saw each other. Uh, We were just chatting before we started recording here, and I think we intercepted each other in the late 2000s in San Francisco. But other than that, we've been pretty out of touch for the last 10 years. And uh, this is cool to be reconnecting after all these years. So I think for everybody listening in on this podcast episode, it's going to be a an interesting blend for both of us because we're basically two friends who are catching up and reconnecting via this call, but also at the same time, Anna will be sharing her story of the last 10 years with uh, all of you listening today. So let's get into it. Anna, how are you?
1: I'm good, thanks.
0: It's good to hear your voice again. Cool. yeah. It's good to hear your voice, too. You sound exactly the same. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. It's crazy how in life so many things can change so much, and yet there are certain consistencies that, you know. I just started filling you in a little bit on my trajectory, at least yes. spiritually, for the past 10 years. And, uh, you know, but even there, it's kind of like, even though my my faith, my spiritual beliefs have changed a lot. I think for people who still know me and interact with me, it's kind of like, oh, but you're still the same person. So, (laughs) you know, it's just kind of that kind of strange blend in life. You know, it's like things change so much, and yet in some ways things don't change at all. Um, Hmm. But, yeah, so let's, uh, let's dig in a little bit here to your trajectory, your story. So last I knew you was really in New York City. And then you just told me you moved to San Francisco for a long time, right? Like between 2005, 2018, you said something like that?
1: Yeah. So when I finished writing the manuscript for my first book, Sexless in the City, I turned it into my editor and pretty much turned around and packed up my Brooklyn apartment. I remember packing out on Halloween of 2006, and then the following day, I had a one way ticket to California, and I ended up being there not quite 12 years, I think it was about 11 and a half. Because then on May 21st, 2018, I got on another plane with a one way ticket, this time just with a heavy backpack and a suitcase and some shoulder bags in tow. Probably I had a little over 100 pounds of stuff at the beginning. And I started on what ended up being a 17-month research trip through 41 countries to do a deep dive in the experience of singleness around the world, focused on Christians.
0: Hmm. So this was uh, May 2018 you started that,
1: was that right? Yes. Yes.
0: Okay. That's when you left uh, San Fr- Bay Area, I should say, not San Francisco. Right. Huh. So... Uh, I have so many questions. Where to begin? So <laughs> what? why don't we start with what prompted you wanting to leave the Bay Area and start this project, I should say. Um, I could call it journey, but
1: it's kind of more yeah.
0: a project, right?
1: Well, I didn't know at the time that I left that it would be a permanent departure, and I still don't know that for sure. I've got the bulk of my possessions in an East Bay Storage unit right now, but I am currently talking to you from Alaska where I've been since November of 2019. So we'll see if I return to the Bay Area long term or not. But Hmm. I guess in a way, this project is somewhat continuous with my first book. That book was, of course, a memoir and it was focused on my experience of being single and Christian in New York City. But then A few years after the book came out, I ended up writing a couple of articles about how, at least in the Protestant church, a lot of the advice to singles focuses on what not to do. And my contention in these two articles is that that's not a very helpful way to live. And in fact, when you look at most things you learn in life you're instructed in what to do, and what you avoid flows out of what you're trying to do. But the church very rarely, at least in my experience, offers substantive instruction on what to do for single Christians. So I wrote a couple of articles about that and sort of began to think that maybe there was a larger piece of writing in that and I started to get the idea for a book that would draw on the stories of various other Christians and in the beginning I thought maybe it would have artists and so forth but the thing was I didn't want to write that book because I had hoped naively that like oh I'm gonna write this book about being single and Christian, and this is gonna sort of be my ticket out of this purgatory, and then God is finally going to bring me the husband that I've been waiting for. Except that that didn't happen. So by wait, wait, the time... wait, wait,
0: wait. I, I have more questions <laughs> here. So by <laughs> of course. By purgatory, do you mean you're being stuck in in singlehood?
1: Yes. Yes. And, Maybe and, my okay. metaphor's a little bit mixed there. I never did finish <laughs> reading all of Dante's series. But yeah, I mean, it wasn't like it was an overt thing, but I think similar to what my friend Caitlin Beatty has sometimes called this Christian prosperity gospel when it comes to relationships. I think she calls it like the sexual prosperity gospel or something. There's almost this idea that if you live in a virtuous way, you're going to get out of singleness, because obviously that's always a bad thing. And... So if you please oh, God, um, then he will reward you with marriage. And, of course, because if you've been living in a virtuous single way, you're going to have a good marriage automatically. I mean, there's just <laughs> a lot of hogwash in all of that. Dude, that, it's a that is how I, I, used
0: to, I used to believe like that, though. Yeah. Like, well, I don't know if you did, too, but I used to feel that. You know, I might not yeah. have... I think it was all kind of under the surface. Just I think that is kind of what I believed, and a lot of Christians believe that it's just going to work out. Like, God has a plan yeah. for you, and if you keep the faith and you stay the course, God will reward you. I mean, there's a lot of scriptural precedent for that.
1: Yeah. I don't know that I believed it in quite the same way, because at any rate, whatever I believed survived the gradual realization that things were not going to work out exactly as I thought. So basically, my memoir came out a few months before I turned 30, and then I spent the rest of my 30s getting out of debt, starting to save, and also at the same time reckoning with the increasingly reduced possibility of marriage, even though I had always thought that my life would include marriage. Mm -hmm. So by the time I wrote these two articles, I think this was like around 2012 or something, I was maybe 34 and more and more coming to terms with the fact that having marriage enter my life was just not going to be this straightforward thing that I had thought. And even though I thought I had worked through a lot of my emotional baggage or whatever around Christianity and singleness yet I still found myself single. So I did a little bit of work on a book proposal for this new concept but I just didn't really want to write it because I was still mad about being single in my 30s <clears throat> and close <clears throat> to the age of a geriatric pregnancy supposedly. <laughs> so
0: Oh I was let me just interrupt you because I wanted to ask you you've been talking oh, about yeah. marriage but was your hope and expectation all along that it would be marriage and kids? Was that important to you? Or is it just about getting married? Oh
1: yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, probably before I was a teenager, I remember I had an index card on which I had written out the names of the ten children I wanted <laughs> to have. And not just first <laughs> names, like they all had middle names too. Because okay. from fairly early in childhood The main way that I put myself to sleep at night as a young night owl was that I would make up these stories about how I was going to meet my husband someday. Somehow, even at like six or seven, I had gotten it into my head that this was the most Mm. interesting narrative was courtship. And so I had Mm. been inventing my own for quite some time. And, you know, if this is successful, obviously you eventually have children. And somehow I deemed it important to know all of their names So yes, motherhood was always something that I assumed would happen. But at the same time, as I wrote for Christianity Today several years ago, I'm not somebody who has felt comfortable bringing a child into the world without two parents. Mm -hmm. I might be open to adoption at some point, but I would never forcibly remove a child from the possibility of a relationship with its biological father. So Egg banking has never been an option for me. And part okay. of that is because I think it's important to make your peace with what life does and doesn't give you. I remember years ago reading an article about this. I don't remember if it related to childbearing or not. But what I remember is that it used the word ennobling to describe some of the disappointments we encounter in life. I wish I could remember the whole phrase better, but I always thought that was a very interesting thing, because nowadays in the United States we seem to think that, at least depending on where you are in the society, some of that may have to do with the color of your skin, but we seem to think that there should be almost nothing that's beyond you, and if you want it you can make it happen. But that's not necessarily how previous generations have understood life. And certainly people who have less access to opportunity and means have a long history of having to accept a number of things they don't necessarily like. And that's not to say we shouldn't seek for change. Certainly when it comes to matters of justice, I think it's really important to fight for what's right. But there's also a tension there, because sometimes you never do get what you want or what is the best thing for your life. And so how do you make your peace with a life that's not necessarily what you expected it to be? So the longer that I've gone in this journey with singleness, I've tried to thread that needle, you know, not denying or trying to stamp out the unsatisfied desires that I've had, but also at the same time saying, how can I accept the life that's handed to me as a gift and try to make the most of it, even if this isn't something I would have chosen for myself? And trying to ramrod children into it is just not something I've been willing to do unless I do actually find myself with a committed partner someday.
0: Right. So all that... Um Oh yeah. I', I, I, I I'm, I'm, no I'm dying to jump in here because I have so many like little thoughts <laughs> I have about so many I should have been writing all this down to but one, what your what you just described kind mm-hmm. of this this journey of hopes and aspirations, but then not a, your experience is not measuring up to everything that you hoped and expected, right? So you've been on that arc, and now you're coming down on the other side of that arc, and it's a matter of what are you going to do about that gap, about that discrepancy, right, between what you expected life would be and what it's actually turning out to be, right? Right. So you have had to deal with that. I have also had to deal with that. And for me, like in my early 30s, you know, I was... I've, you know, I've said this on the Confusing Ending podcast earlier, but like, um, and I'll point you to that because I would love for you to just hear my story there rather than me reiterate it all now. But in a nutshell, a lot of it was at 30. I, like you say, like I, I wanted to be married. I wanted to fall in love. Mm -hmm. I wanted to have kids and all that. And it wasn't even the fact that it hadn't happened yet at 30. For me, it was that I had no momentum heading toward that. You know when mm. I looked at my dating life, when I looked at my situation in the church, when I looked at the fact that it was all whites and Koreans, and mm. the white girls go the white girls go for white guys, the Korean girls go for white guys, and I'm the only Indian guy, and it just felt like, uh mm. this is not really working out, you know. And at the same time, uh, I was a virgin at thirty, so right. I was doing exactly what you and I are talking about, like you know, according to scripture, like. Being a good Christian, being a stand-up guy, like doing it the right way, having faith in God. Like look at Abraham, you know, how long he waited. I'm like, surely I can wait till at least 30, you know. <laughs> so did all that. And then I was like, you know what? I got to put everything on the table here and question things. So hmm. um, I do want to hear more about, because right now you just led us up through that arc and I just explained how I've also been on that arc. And yeah. you and I have, I think, subsequently gone in different ways We've reacted differently and ended up in two different places. Yes, which we'll get get into. (laughs) Um, But I just wanted to to add that in that like I'm totally with you there. Um, So tell tell us now like you're coming out of that and that sort of realization. It's kind of swallowing that bitter pill, and how that has now played out for you in recent years. You tell your side, and then I'll kind of tell my.
1: Well. You know, I think your, your image of the arc is an interesting one because when you say that, I picture a curved line. But the thing is, I'm actually picturing something that's a little bit closer to maybe a sine wave because it doesn't just go below the line that I expected. There are other places where that, that curve goes above. So, for example... Because I hadn't gotten married at the age I expected to, in 2015, so I guess when I was 37, I ended up getting invited to move into an intentional community that was living in a former convent in the El Cerrito Hills. So I ended up moving into what had at one time been the Mother Superior Suite, which had some of the rare views of the San Francisco Bay and the Bay Bridge. From my bedroom window and I was able to live in that house in a mixture of singles and other families for three years before I left for my research trip. And the thing that I discovered was that living in community like that is such an incredibly rich experience and it was so good that it's actually changed the way I think about what adult community would look like in the future. Even if I get married someday, I don't know anymore if I would only seek to live forever, at least as long as I would live, in a house with just my husband and any children that we might have. Because I saw how much good comes from living in a slightly larger community. So... Even though I didn't necessarily get the committed relationship that I expected to have by my 30s, that left me open to have a much richer adult living experience than I would have expected. And probably to have much deeper friendships through my 30s because I continued to live with a mix of other adults. And another way that... I had more than I would have had, (laughs) is that as I increasingly made progress financially and was able to get out of the debt that I'd racked up in my 20s, I was able to travel more. And so it's weird, because on the one hand, I haven't gotten the experiences that I always thought as a child I would have, but in terms of things that I would have wanted, like intellectual conversation... Mm -hmm and opportunities to explore the world, I've actually gotten a lot more of that than my young self imagined. And so I think that's something that I'm learning more and more as I get older, even with this pandemic that we've been going through. There's a lot of loss and you see the loss immediately But every change is also an opportunity, and it makes room for something. It's just not always obvious what it makes room for. In fact, the very fact that I was able to take this research trip was because of a very deep disappointment in part. So, you know, I'd been working on the singleness book very half-heartedly, and then around 2014, I got, well, at the time it seemed like I got sidetracked. In a very good way, but in hindsight, I don't think I was sidetracked at all. What happened was I became increasingly challenged and convicted around dealing with racism in my own life and beginning to reckon a lot more with race-based injustice in our society. And so starting in kind of early summer 2014, and then for pretty much the time from then on through the departure for my trip, I became completely immersed in that. And that was probably my biggest focus and occupation outside of work and, and day-to-day life things. I was like reading and listening and going to events and everything like that. And of course trying to do a lot of repentance as well and reckoning with how that pervaded my own heart and way of looking at the world. And then So because of that, I had kind of completely lost sight of this book idea. And if it came to mind at all, I probably would have told you, oh, that was just an idea. And I'm a person who gets a lot of ideas. So it's not Mm -hmm. uncommon for me to have an idea and then walk away from it later. And I thought that was what had happened with the Singleness book. Well, in the middle of this journey, I was becoming increasingly frustrated at my job. I'd been there since 2006, And had been promoted once, but when I tried to advance again and take on some supervisory responsibility, I continued to get blocked. And the most disappointing of those happened in 2017. And the hiring manager liked my ideas, but ultimately chose one of the people I would have supervised in that role. And that just Mm. felt kind of like a gut punch, because it was like... This is the lowest risk situation for any hiring manager I could interact with. I've got almost a decade long track record at this company. I'm a fairly well-known entity. And if I can't even persuade somebody in a company where I've worked Mm. that long, how am I ever going to win over somebody in a company that's never dealt with me before? So I just felt so trapped, you know, like, I don't know where I go from here. That feeling of like,
0: what am I even doing here?
1: Well, that too. But it was like, if I can't even get a new job within my own company, how am I going to find a new job somewhere else? Because I wasn't even getting interviews elsewhere.
0: Yeah.
1: But a funny thing a happened. a big blow to your it,
0: confidence. Yeah. yeah. You
1: know, probably if I had put more of my identity in that work, it would have been more devastating. I mean, I still cried about it and everything later. But I've never looked at the sort of nine-to-five work as as my calling. It's something I enjoy, and I always like helping people communicate more effectively, but I think I've looked at the writing that I do as the more important work, ultimately.
0: So you, maybe... You really- Mentioned the specifics of that job. Were you were you a writer at that job mostly, or were you? Doing I was. I else?
1: was um, a communication manager by that point, so I was doing writing and editing in a corporate context,
0: okay. and,
1: and working with internal clients and things. But when the hiring manager called me into his office for that conversation to let me know his decision, somehow I found the wherewithal, even though I was just almost on the point of tears, somehow I found it in me to say, well, this just means that I remain open for something else. And of course, at the time I was saying that, it seemed like something else equaled nothing. (laughs) There was nothing (laughs) that I was staying open for, you know? There was nothing better that I could go to, because that job would have involved a pay raise, and I would have had my own office for the first time, and it was an office that looked out over the Golden Gate Bridge. I mean, it seemed like, A pretty sweet deal if I had gotten it, despite some misgivings that I had about what the job would have involved. It might have even involved some travel, which I liked the idea of. Uh But a few months later, I found myself on my third international trip of the year, which was unprecedented for me. And one night as I went to bed, I suddenly got the idea for what I ended up starting six months later, which was around-the-world trip to research a book on singleness. And very shortly after this idea came to me, as crazy as it was, as overwhelming as it was, as ambitious as it seemed, I realized that it wasn't actually a new idea. It was actually the same idea as that project I had dragged my feet on all those years before. But all of a sudden, it was like the proper form of it had finally come to me and I was ready to take it on it was much bigger than what I had dared to imagine in the beginning but it seemed like the right time and the right approach to it and of course now I look back on it and think my goodness if I had started that much later I would have been right in the middle of this pandemic and that would have just shut me down i mean it's crazy <laughs> now to think yeah. back on how rapidly i was changing countries at some point mm-hmm. and how little infection and illness i encountered considering all the places i went to i mean i'm still dealing with parasites but overall oh god i was extremely fortunate in terms that you've of got my health
0: parasites on that in that on that during that trip though
1: Oh yeah. yeah. Multi- multiple kinds, probably multiple oh, times. Yeah. <laughs> I'll spare Please. you the details, but there's yeah. there's no trip like See, this without some
0: cost. <laughs> See, this is the thing. Like I'm I'm such a germaphobe. Mm. It's interesting because of and we'll get into this later, but like the whole pandemic debate, we can talk specifically mm. about all of that. But I've been more on the side of evaluating the, COVID 19 and what it is, and the data, and all that stuff, and how much of a threat it is. Mm-hmm. And even though I'm a germaphobe, I've come to the conclusion of like, mm, I'm not, it's not really phasing me. Like, I'm going to go about my life. I'm not, it's not really, it's not going to kill me. Hmm. So, even though I'm on the germaphobe side of things, that's my take on it. But when it comes to what you have been doing with international travel, and probably a lot of the things you've eaten, and <laughs> <laughs> Like the, 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 level of things you've exposed yourself to was probably by my standards, probably risky, like, you're risky, <laughs> you know, but you know, it's risk is a very personal thing. I keep saying that, you know, so it's like, if you are comfortable with that level of risk and then dealing with the consequences of that, you know, then that's on you, you know, but that's your, your personal choices, which we're all entitled to. Yeah. You know, well, you know, but this I was mean, so, some... this was 2018,
1: yeah, that's when I started the trip.
0: Okay. So this was like 2018 to 2019 was when you traveled right. the world.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I was in 25 different countries in the first seven months.
0: Nice. So I don't know where to begin with this. Uh, <laughs> I mean, there, you, you could probably talk for eight hours straight about all the stories you have. So, yeah. Um, I guess I want to, because there's so many things for us to talk about today. um, What, if you had to give kind of a cliff notes version of the entire experience, you know, so you traveled for over a little over a year around the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So why don't you tell us about sort of the thesis and what your expectations were going into the trip and then talk a little bit in summary of what you ended up experiencing, some of the highlights And then kind of maybe some conclusions coming out of it.
1: Sure. Well, it's funny that you frame it that way, because I think one of the most daunting things for me was the sense of going into something unformed and something that didn't exist. And it took a lot for me to get to the point where I was willing to undertake that risk because I had probably been frustrated in my job for probably about two years at least before I left and at times I thought about quitting my job and living off my savings until I found something new but even with the relatively affordable Bay Area rent I was paying I would burn through my savings so fast, I just couldn't justify it. And then I thought about transitioning to freelance work, but again, it was like that transition period and and what it would take with my savings, I just couldn't justify using my savings for that. But nor did I necessarily see myself just moving someplace else. So the thing that sort of helped persuade me eventually to take this trip was that I had two experiences in 2017 that really profoundly shaped me. One was through my job I learned about a program for some leadership development that uh, American physicians were participating in to help develop leaders in different African countries who were physicians. And they had a communication portion of that meeting, and I had a feeling that probably they might benefit from some subject matter expertise in that area. Most of the things had to do more with the nuts and bolts of everyday practice, and obviously the physicians are experts in that. But in the area of communication specifically, it seemed to me like, well, maybe there's a little bit more room for somebody who's not necessarily a physician to be helpful here. So I was interested in possibly participating in this trip. And I was also even more interested in the stories that I would hear from the doctors I might be able to meet. But this was pretty far outside the bounds of my job. It was related to my job. But at most, I had been able to get my bosses to agree that I had to write one story a year. Other than that, I wasn't primarily supposed to be writing in my job. So in the end, I had to pay my own way, and I couldn't even use company time for the trip. I had to use vacation to take this trip. But there was a journalist friend at the New York Times who really encouraged me to pursue it and just write it off. And so that was kind of a big step to say, I want to be part of this, and I think there's an opportunity. And there was interest on the physician side. They were very glad to have me join them. But that was kind of a leap to begin with, to say like, well, I want to do this thing. There's not necessarily a paved road, but I'm just going to pursue this. Well, then a few months later, when I was taking the trip to Europe, I had an opportunity for a stopover in Lisbon, Portugal. And I remembered that this artist whose work I'd read about in the Wall Street Journal possibly had a studio there. And I was really interested in trying to possibly see more of his work. But in trying to find out where he might be exhibiting in Lisbon, it turned out the guy had no social media, no website, nothing. So it was very difficult to find out about his schedule. And ultimately, I ended up contacting a couple of the galleries he had exhibited with. And to my delight, one of them... Did you say this guy was a
0: video artist?
1: No, he's a painter primarily. Oh, okay. His name is Francisco Vidal, which is not the only...
0: Sounds like a fairly common a, name, I would think.
1: There are other there are other artists with that name. But this Francisco Vidal, uh, in particular, makes canvases out of machetes or metal that he's had fabricated in the shape of machetes. And so he'll bolt them together to make these canvases, and then he paints on them. Frequently, he'll paint flowers, and I think it's the cornflower, which might be a Marxist symbol, but it's super, super interesting work. So anyway... Ooh. I was really eager to see more of his work if I could, because I had actually seen one work in person during a very brief stopover in London earlier that year. Well, so the gallery gets back to me and actually copies the artist on the email. So long story short, ultimately I was able to meet up with him on this brief stopover in Lisbon, and what I thought might be only like a 15-minute conversation to look at his work ended up being whole afternoon talking about religion and a whole host of ideas. So that was a really exhilarating experience. And there was something about it that really profoundly affected me. I still don't know entirely why, but I think it was the realization there was no paved road to that conversation. There was no defined path to, like, oh, this is how you connect with this artist. But I had, you had seen to, something... You had to go
0: out of your way to make that happen. It wasn't just going to happen organically.
1: Right, right. Yeah. But it was an extraordinary experience to have had this desire and then to see that in pursuing it, things unfolded beyond my wildest imagining to actually have an extended conversation and see a lot of his work. And I think mm. I needed... That validation and that encouragement because I'm a firstborn. I am pretty risk averse in a lot of ways, you know. And the mm. idea of just setting out on my own and trying to travel around the world, finding people to talk to without any sort of institutional affiliation like, that's pretty ambitious. That's pretty risky,
0: <laughs> you know. So funny. It felt like. That's funny because I'm, I'm second born, but I have, because I know you're in general, your story of being all over the place, <laughs> I think of you as being the, the risky, you know, risk taking out there person. And I'm the one who just very safely is at home, but I'm the second born.
1: That's funny. Yeah. Well, but see, I think whenever I have under, I have undertaken a few big risks in my life, but I've always done it very carefully. And when Which it comes to a lot of... Which I think is the best
0: way to take risks, calculated risks.
1: Yeah. So in this case, I think something that helped me take the risk of quitting my job and using my savings to fund the trip was the fact that I had two specific experiences in 2017 where I had sort of blazed my own trail a little bit, Mm -hmm. but I saw that for whatever reason, I of course think it was God honoring that, but others might see it differently, for whatever reason those two risks played out well. And so I started to think, maybe the next job for me, maybe the next work that I'm supposed to commit myself to is not actually a position that some hiring manager is seeking to fill. Maybe it's something that I have to create, but it's not looking for clients either. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So ultimately, I threw myself into this starting late in 2017, So I was like, okay, I'll kind of get my feet wet, start things off in Europe, then I'll progress to Africa by August, and I guess I thought at that point that I could do Africa in a couple of months and, you know, kind of continue on my way, maybe about two months per continent, and that would get me to 12 months. And that was kind of how things proceeded. So anyhow, maybe a week would be about enough time for me to kind of find my footing in a city, make contacts, and do interviews. And... Actually, in a number of cities, I was able to do it in about that time. There were other places where then it was more difficult. But gosh, I think back on some places and it's crazy how often it was like the last or next to last day in the city. And all of a sudden I get like the five interviews that I'm looking for. So it was really interesting how that happened. But I had a lot of people praying for me. I had learned that from previous vacations abroad, that for some reason it seemed to make a really big difference if people prayed. If they did, I had a good trip. If they didn't, (laughs) I didn't have a good trip. And so I had just decided like, well, okay, then when I travel, I'm going to ask people to pray and I'm going to do my best to make sure that I'm continuing to connect with local Christian communities and worshiping on a regular schedule, just like I would back home. And it doesn't matter if they're Speaking in a language I don't understand, I'm still going to make an effort to carry all on right. with this.
0: Well, let's take a let's take a step back here for a second because yeah. I don't I don't know that you've really briefed the audience listening now about <laughs> what the project is and what you're sure, sure, where you're sure. coming from. I don't right. even think you've mentioned your, your that you're Christian and that this is a Christian project. And so let's let's take a step back and yeah. when you started this trip and this project. What what is this project all about, and what are your goals and The plan, Right. let's start there.
1: So the earliest vision of the idea was back in 2012 that I was going to write a book about the stories of other Christian singles and kind of what they were doing. And I think in part the thinking was sometimes the church has told Christians, oh, you're single, great, this is an opportunity for you to go into full-time ministry and become a missionary and go eat worms in the jungle or something. But there was almost nothing that was offered to the person who didn't feel called to that. Like, what does it look like to be single and Christian and stay in your own culture and not go into full-time ministry? Partly, I think the lack of guidance and instruction there is because the church hasn't done a very good job of talking about how work relates to faith either. Some some churches and communities do a better job, but but not all. So... I think I was interested in looking at the lives of ordinary Christian laity, people who are not in leadership for the most part, and seeing what they're doing. And are they finding any opportunities in the midst of the disappointment, perhaps, that they feel about not being married? Mm. So that was kind of the goal Originally, I think I was probably going to focus more on Protestants, in part because it was easier, and that's that's where most of my connections were.
0: Mm-hmm. But
1: one of the experts I consulted early on really encouraged me to think more broadly, because she said, you know, that's where a lot of the research happens. There is not much research that includes the Catholics and the Orthodox Christians. And I okay. pretty quickly came around to that and saw that she was right. And actually, in the case of singleness, I think that was particularly wise, because as it turns out, each of those traditions has very different views on leadership. So in the Catholic Church, obviously, you're not supposed to marry at all, which is a radically different understanding from in the Protestant Church. I mean, in the Protestant Church, singleness is often seen as quite a liability, like you're not trustworthy. You know, there's mm. there's a lot of... Concerns about going into ministry as a single person. And the Catholic Church is completely different. Now, then, interestingly, the Orthodox Church is even more different because you can be married, but from what I have been told, I think it's like from the time of ordination or something like that. I may not be defining it quite right. But there's some point in the journey toward the priesthood where you basically have a year to find a spouse. And if you do, great, then you will be a married priest. But if you don't find a spouse within that period, then you have to commit to being a priest and you can't get married at that point. And then interestingly, higher up in the church, there's a role of bishop. And I don't know a lot about this except that I've interviewed the bishop for the state of Alaska. And as far as I know, for that role, you also have to be single. And so it's interesting mm. because apparently that has, even though the Orthodox Church in Alaska has decent participation from Alaska Natives, the people who are indigenous to this part of the world, they haven't had a native bishop because the bishop has to be single. And that culture, from what I'm told, tends to prioritize marriage. So it's, it's in some cultures, a hard thing to ask someone to remain single. But in this case, the current bishop here was eligible for that position because he had become widowed. And so he had to make a choice not to remarry, but it was a bit different for him. So I immediately found, once I started to get into these interviews and, and kind of looking at the three different traditions, that there was a real richness that came Simply in terms of how singleness interacted with leadership, that I'm getting a much more complex story just by bringing together the three main traditions in the Christian Church.
0: So at first, you were describing you wanted to go interview regular people out there, Christians, yes, and not, not and I necessarily did leadership. Okay, right. But now you now you talked about focusing yeah. specifically on the leadership aspect. Yeah.
1: So I should clarify. So eventually I got to the point where my goal for each place was to talk to about five people. And I felt like for the number of countries I was going to, that would give me a pretty good cross section. Now, sometimes it worked out that I was in a small group where we had some kind of discussion. Occasionally I did a small group interview, but I've now talked to almost 330 people from almost 40 countries. Okay. And I it's not I'm curious, quite 60% I'm curious about the statistics women, the breakdown. 40% men? Yeah. Um,
0: yeah.
1: I think I'm about maybe 57% female, 43% male, something like that. So what okay. I would ideally have in that mix of five people per city was one person in leadership, and I didn't always require that the person in leadership be single, but I thought You know, I want to get first-person accounts of singleness, but anybody who's in a leadership capacity within the church is probably going to see more of a pattern. They may be interacting with the older singles, like widows and widowers, but they're also going to be seeing the younger singles. And so I did think it would be helpful to get some perspective from somebody who could kind of give me a little bit more macro perspective on the community. Ideally, maybe I'm talking to two men, two women, and then a leader. And of course, it was a little bit different in every setting, but that. Yeah, was Yeah, of course. What if I you if you visit one city for. and
0: you happen to interview an Orthodox leader in this one city, you're going to get that Orthodox perspective from that city. Right. You know and I mean, so it's little, It's it's less about the geography of that area and more about just the particular branch of Christianity they're in, right?
1: Yeah, so ideally I was going to say, what is the majority tradition for Christianity in this country? And then I would try to focus on that. Usually what happened was I would find all the people I interviewed within a particular community or church. So maybe it's one particular parish or, you know, a particular priest or pastor helps me and says, okay, these are the people I have for you.
0: Yeah. I guess it's kind of like just out of... The nature of the situation, you have to work with, you know, the limited time constraint. So you kind of have mm-hmm. to go in and be like, yeah, right, I'm going to do five interviews from this one particular congregation. Yeah. But thinking about it, it is a very limited cross-section. It's kind of like if you went to New York City mm-hmm. and you interviewed five people from Redeemer you're probably going to get different answers than if you went to like, you know, a Brooklyn tabernacle where it's all African American and black, you know? So it's like,
1: well, and that's an interesting point because that's why when it came to the United States, I actually visited, I think about seven cities, seven or eight. Uh And I was very intentional about the U S to make sure that I was talking to people from a number of different types of churches. Okay. So ideally, when I was in San Antonio, Texas, I was trying to find people who were Hispanic American and Catholic. I did uh-huh. talk to a couple of women there, but I didn't I still potentially need to kind of backfill on that experience a little bit. Then, when I was in Atlanta, I was trying to get a traditional black church experience. I ran a little bit short there, but I did want to make sure that I was getting enough African-American voices, and when I came to Alaska, I was hoping to get indigenous American voices. So far, I've talked to two Alaskan natives. One of the reasons I came here after I finished my travels, though, was that I was told, particularly with indigenous Americans and the terrible history that's there with Euro-Americans, it's going to take more time and trust for people to be willing to say yes to an interview. So I felt like if I was going to, I had to settle someplace after the main travel, and if there was a place that was particularly strategic, it seemed like Alaska because I had by far better success connecting with Indigenous Americans here than any of the other places in the U.S. where I stopped. So that's why I made the decision to at least for the time being come that makes here. Sense.
0: So what? And then like what you are,
1: know, when I was. What are
0: the? Yeah, go ahead.
1: Oh, I was gonna say just so. Then when I was in Los Angeles, that seemed to be a great city to get more of an Asian American experience. And so, I worked with an older Baptist congregation there, which is a bit unusual in having people whose ancestors came from different Asian countries. So it's not a mono ethnic church.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's um, Chinese churches, Korean churches, and they I think typically right. Have but this to do one each other.
1: Evergreen is a mix. So I thought that would be an interesting place yeah. for that part it's of a very,
0: research. It's a very ambitious project, I will say. <laughs> um, and I, I guess you're going at it from more of a qualitative stance as opposed to quantitative because it, it's so seemingly haphazard, right, in your data collection methods. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really... I'm guessing it it's probably more of, like, a collection of stories from a range of people, you know, across the world. But it's not like you went into it probably with a, a specific thesis, I'm guessing, or expectation. No. Or, yeah, let me just shift the question to that. So going in, sure. did you have, well, first of all, I want to ask, like, what, what were the interview sessions like? Did you have, like, a set list of five questions you want to get to, and you asked everybody the same yeah, kind five of well, questions, or...
1: That evolved, of course, and something I did that was probably not standard journalistic practice, very quickly, I started to open each conversation with prayer. because in a way, an interview is that, a little bit that's of a fine fishing
0: with, exp- with addition.
1: Well, you know, first of all, I wanted to sort of acknowledge my obligation before God and a sense of accountability to him that I want to be responsible. And how I handle this person's story. And I want to honor that story. Because they're Mm -hmm. trusting me with it. But also, I don't necessarily know what's going to be the most important part of this person's story for us to talk about. You know, I've got kind of this rubric of questions to try to tease out how singleness affects their life. But I may not be asking about the right things. And so... There was also a sense of asking God for help, like, you know this person's story, you know what I need to hear, or what's the most interesting part of this, but I don't necessarily know how to get there. So all that to say, you know, open with prayer, whatever. And then, generally, we would work through different aspects of ordinary life. So very typically, I would ask about meals and cooking, I'd ask about housing, leisure and vacation, sometimes we might talk about work and vocation. Occasionally, we would talk about parenting and relationships with children. So it was kind of open to the person what they felt like talking about. Certainly, we talked about sexuality in the body sometimes, but not every conversation covered the same ground.
0: Okay, but it was always in the context of singleness. Like, so cooking by yourself or what it's like as a single person cooking. Not just talking about cooking for 20 minutes, just about cooking.
1: Right, right, right. Well, and so one of the very interesting things that came up is that most single people have at least some things that they don't cook or they don't eat because you get too much food for yourself. Yeah. And it was interesting how many people did this but didn't realize it until we talked about it. (laughs) And, like, I didn't realize that I'd had this ongoing problem with milk spoiling because I typically bought milk in a gallon because that was the most economical way to buy milk in the United (laughs) States. Right. But I actually had a grocery store owner in Brooklyn kind of like single shame me because I took back a gallon that spoiled before the expiration date. And he told me I bought too much milk.
0: <laughs> like, oh, my God,
1: that's that's something that doesn't happen to somebody with a family or at least a oh. wedding ring.
0: You know, that's interesting. It's interesting to make that connection. It well, never couple, occurred to me
1: until I was working on this.
0: Yeah, there's a couple. Like, I just bought. What is it that I just bought the other day? I bought something and then I looked at the. It was some. I think it was some carrots or something. And it was like. Mm-hmm. No, no, it was guacamole. So I bought some guac. It's all packaged and sealed or whatever. But right. I, I opened it up and I looked and it was like it was already past the expiration date. And I just bought it like a couple of days earlier. So I was like. Huh. Huh. But it was sealed and, you know, I opened it and I smelled it and it was fine. So I ate it and it's like, okay, fine. But I don't know. It's pretty rare that I would ever take something back to return it. If I were... Hmm. Well, first of all, I don't drink milk anymore. I, I've hmm. gone off dairy. So I, I have almond milk, which stays good forever. But... <laughs> so that's out in terms of relating to your story there. But if I had something that spoiled before the date, I would probably throw it out and just factor that in in my own mind. Yeah. Like... Like, okay, I shouldn't buy buy as much milk next
1: time. But single people reported a lot of that. Like, there's a lot of problem with spoilage or things that you throw out. Or, like, maybe if you live alone, you're not going to bake a cake. Because that's a lot to eat unless you have access to, like, an office that you can take it in and share the food with your coworkers or something. Or what really got interesting about this then was when I was in cultures where people didn't as commonly have refrigeration. And sometimes that was for economic reasons, but sometimes it was because they had been taught to value fresh food. I talked to a priest in Bangalore who probably could have afforded a fridge, but he didn't buy one because of how his mom had always stressed fresh food. And Mm. so then you have a case where like, Similarly, I talked to a teacher in Kenya who liked to have chicken but also didn't have a refrigerator. So he is basically never going to buy a whole chicken, which is pretty much how you get it there. Because you buy a fresh chicken and you kill it. And then you cook it. But he (laughs) can't eat a whole chicken by himself and he has no way of keeping the leftovers. So it was really interesting to learn more about the different... Challenges that people faced. I had a Swiss man who told me when he lived alone, he stopped eating bread because he couldn't get through a whole loaf of bread before it would spoil. Even though bread was actually quite important in his culture, he had to give that up at least while he was living alone.
0: I'm I'm also gluten-free now, so I don't eat bread anymore. I don't have to worry, <laughs> I have to worry about that anymore. Um, I, Specifically with what you were just describing, a lot of what you were saying there about food and those kind of things, like it seems pretty universal to Mm -hmm. single people in general. Yes. Um, And that would also be very specific to this particular culture that you're in, geographically speaking, as opposed Mm -hmm. to the faith aspect of it. So I guess what I'm curious is, so you undertook this project to specifically talk to Christian singles. Mm -hmm. And I guess what I'm most curious about what were your kind of your key takeaways or or like going in versus coming out? Were you surprised by some things you learned specific to being Christian and single?
1: Well, I think one thing that surprised me was how significant an area meals and cooking proved to be. Now, on the face of it, this didn't initially seem to have a lot to do with faith, but then as I started working on the sample chapter and and wrestling with that a lot, one thing that I think emerged as one of the more difficult pieces of it was eating alone, and it was like very in, in interesting. public
0: versus at home.
1: Well, that too. I mean, actually, I had a number of people, women in particular tell me that they didn't like eating in public alone.
0: Yeah.
1: And I think dinner was one that came up more often. There may be some cultural variances. There may also be some generational things. But I had older women say that they didn't like eating alone. I've even had that experience. I remember vividly when I went to Harrods on a spring break trip to London when I was maybe 19 or 20, And I have never had such a lonely eating experience in my life. Because here it was, this indulgent splurge that I'm going to have high tea, and I had no one to share it with, no one to talk to. And it just seemed such a waste of the whole experience. And even actually since moving to Alaska, I've been really struck by how important sharing food is for me in cooking. And how much of that joy comes through being able to make and eat something good and see that recognition in another person's eyes and share their enjoyment, which actually, I think, comes back to the question of communion and the fact that Christians have an opportunity to eat with others on a regular basis. At least we're supposed to be able to.
0: Well... That's interesting you bring it back to communion because I never, I was a Christian for 33 years or so.
1: hmm
0: I would never think of communion in that way. For me, communion well, is something you'd go do that, you go, you know, like, depending on the church, it would be every week or, you know, communion yeah. Sunday. Um, right. I never I never equated that with getting together with friends to, quote unquote, fellowship and eat together. I never really thought of that. Like sort of Well, and I, and I didn't,
1: yeah, and I didn't either. But then as I was reflecting on the chapter, I began to ponder that more deeply. And actually, I heard a really fascinating talk that got into this in part by the Professor Willie James Jennings when he spoke in San Francisco earlier this year. And he talked about how much communion and the idea of sharing a meal challenged the early church as they tried to become the multi-ethnic community that they were meant to be but didn't really want to be and he had this really fascinating riff on how to eat someone else's food is well I can't even do it justice but kind of like it's almost an act of becoming one with them or you know there's a very fundamental act of communion that's there and you think about going into a cross-cultural setting like how deep the offense might be if you don't eat what they offer to you like it's really interesting the more that you think about it how much food does relate to our communion with others and ultimately yeah I guess
0: I guess if you use communion you're using for me communion is a very religious spiritual word um Mm -hmm when I hear it, I think in that context of, you know, eating the the flesh of Jesus Christ and all that. Right. Um, But I could agree with you on the sense that I think eating is inherently, in a lot of cultures, a very social activity, Mm -hmm. you know? And Tim Keller used to talk about that all the time, not just within Christianity, but it's just like, you know, you get together with friends, you go out to eat. Like exactly what you're describing about to go out to a fancy restaurant and eat by yourself it's, it's something about it, especially when you look around and everyone else is couples and mm-hmm. families and you're sitting there by yourself eating. You know, regardless of the let's face it, the reality is most of the people in that restaurant they don't even notice you. They don't notice that you're alone, mm. and it's all in your head. That but but you feel it. It's yeah. probable. and I know because I also used to really struggle with that. And mm. and one of my things in terms of being single and like we were talking about earlier about all of our plans for life and happiness. I wanted to meet somebody, fall in love, and travel the world together, you know? Like, Mm -hmm. I always, I mean, I was not a person in debt. I always had the financial means. I mean, like, in my late 20s, early 30s, I I worked hard, and I I didn't spend a lot of money. I didn't go on vacations. Mm -hmm. I just didn't splurge that way. So I was, like, ready to go at any time. Like, all right, me and my girlfriend or me and my wife, like, let's get on the plane and go travel the world. That just didn't come to be. So I was left with the choice of, all right, well, do I just go travel the world by myself? uh, Or do I just keep saving up more money and working hard now, and then once I meet the person later, then we'll go travel the world together, right? Mm -hmm. So, and enjoy that. So, I don't know, like this was like the whole similar thing with me in my 20s and 30s where I kind of went through that, and now I've, okay, at some point, in this conversation probably a little later i'm going to go <laughs> off i'm going to go off on a bit and i'm going to tell you and everyone well some people have been listening and already know this about me but i'm going to talk about stoicism
1: okay mm. and i
0: don't know i don't know how familiar you are with that as a philosophy but that has been i don't want to call it my new religion but that has been my solution for how to live mm. life in a deep and meaningful and joyful way so i'm not going to get all into that now i'll get into that maybe later but going back to the, the food thing, I get it. I get that eating food is a kind of an inherently social activity. But I will also say this: it doesn't have to be so. And again, this I'm, I'm gonna be I'm gonna be kind of hinting at stoicism throughout our conversation here until, <laughs> until I dive into it. But the thing with stoicism is it's kind of like, okay, I think one of the the problems that we all have, whether you're Christian or not, in life is that. Along the way, we all, it's just thrust upon us that certain things just are a certain way or they're supposed to be a certain way. And that's, it goes across the board, you know, like, oh, you're supposed to go to preschool before kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Oh, like, oh, you're supposed to graduate high school. Oh, you're supposed to go to college or you're supposed to have a girlfriend or you're supposed to wait till marriage for sex, or you should have sex by your 21st birthday, or, you know, just whatever. There's always this pressure on people, on individuals, that there's a certain way things are just supposed to be done. And again, this is across the board, religious influences, familial influences, specifically parental influences, influences from your particular school or education, uh, whatever peer group you happen to be in with your friends, uh, whatever media you happen to be ingesting, now we have the internet. I mean, I, you and I both grew up sort of pre-internet. Um, but I I can't even imagine what it's like now growing up as a kid, because you're just exposed to everything all at once from a young age and how you make sense of that. I think that's actually why we have a lot of screwed up kids nowadays, but I'm, I'm not going to go down (laughs) on that tangent either, but, um, kind of what I'm getting at here is they're going back to the food thing. It's like, I agree that it's a social thing. And I think I heard Tim Keller preach on that multiple times. And I got that sort of communion idea from the church for all those years. But coming out of all that, I realized like, oh, it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. And for me, there's a a sharp contrast between eating alone at home and eating Mm -hmm. alone outside. And even back when I was single and lonely or whatever as a Christian, I actually never had a problem eating at home alone. Not even for a second I never felt lonely or not even like a tiny one percent because I I enjoyed it like I I either order in in New York or whatever or now I cook a lot Mm -hmm. so I've actually really gotten more into because I I live in Philly now I have a nice kitchen Mm. and I am becoming a pretty good cook so like I, I make good food I experiment and like I enjoy the food but it's I make it, I enjoy it and I, I have a beautiful you know 65 inch widescreen TV and I just put it on and I got nice lighting in my apartment. and ah, I enjoy- but see,
1: that's the interesting thing though, because that was something that I found in my research is that people almost never eat alone without doing something that I think subconsciously fills that space in terms of human contact. And I wouldn't be surprised if it was the case that that most often happened with dinner because it did seem to be that not all meals were the same. Like, I think...
0: Oh, yeah, totally. You know,
1: people don't necessarily expect conversation or companionship at breakfast. Maybe you're still waking up, whatever. Lunch, too. You know, maybe you're eating at your desk or in the middle of working. that seemed to be okay. But... I think there's kind of a sense that dinner is often or ought to be the meal at which you're sort of processing your day. And so Mm -hmm. it's interesting because here in Alaska, I found it was so important to me to share at least tastes of my cooking, which I couldn't do with my housemates because of their diets initially, that the friend I've gotten closest to here is in part because I just made it a point to share almost everything I cooked with that friend and so now almost every time we get together there's some sense of a meal and it's like I can somehow be okay with making a really good recipe if I know okay at least once while I'm eating my way through this dish I will get to share it with this other person and see that he also enjoys you know the spices or whatever.
0: This is an interesting, I, I'm glad you shared that because it also gets me thinking, I wonder if there, there has to be a different dynamic here in terms of expectation with men and women too. Because hmm. I think what you're that describing, I think there might be more of a, a female propensity for that than me hmm. as, as a guy, just a theory. But I, I, I think that there probably is something to that
1: because be, I, but I'm-
0: I cook, I cook good food and then I'm like, I enjoy it and there's nobody else there to eat it and I'm kind of like, <laughs> I, the thought doesn't even cross my mind like oh oh somebody else should be eating this right now I'm like eh. <laughs> you know
1: but you're still watching tv or something while you eat it you said
0: yeah it's interesting you brought up about the difference between meals because I totally agree with that I would say that's food for thought for me to think about in terms of the social expectation of each meal yes that is a good point for me because I eat Especially during the pandemic for the last five months, oh I'm completely, right, completely, completely alone, completely isolated. Yeah. So, for me, the only difference is, and plus the thing is, I do intermittent fasting. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Oh yeah, so I, does my friend. I, <laughs> yeah. So I try, I try to skip breakfast basically. So I try to hold off mm. as long as I can. So I eat my first meal, depending on how hungry I am, depending on. My routine really got screwed up because I used to go to gym the gym in the morning, which was great. And I'd be mm-hmm. there for a couple hours and then I'd come home. It's much easier to delay the fast when mm-hmm. you're working out. Uh, so I could come back home and eat at like 12 or 1. But now it's like I wake up at 6 in the morning. I start to get hungry by 9. You know, I'm like, uh. so. But anyway, um, I tried to skip the first meal. So basically I eat now anywhere between 10, 30 and 1 so Mm -hmm. i don't really have names for my meals anymore because they're not Mm -hmm. really tied to a specific time it's Mm -hmm. just kind of like you know my first meal of the day my midday meal i guess you could say Mm -hmm. but i have a great routine going right now i basically make scrambled eggs uh olives pickles my cousin they actually run a pickle business shout out to dc dills Mm -hmm. really good pickles so i get some pickles from them like a, a whole bunch of them so so I'll do pickles, um, olives, scrambled eggs, and I usually do like a uh, chana masala, uh, those little packets that I can microwave in like a like a minute. Or if my mom, okay. sometimes she's made some bean stew in the Instant Pot, hmm. and she'll bring me a whole bunch okay. of it so I can eat mm. some of that. With it. But, you know, some various combinations of that. That's basically my midday meal. And I might also do like some chips and salsa. Mm-hmm. and the thing that i've really gotten into lately is after that i eat an orange and it's kind of like if mm. i don't have the orange after it i just feel really interesting antsy and like craving an orange and huh. a like or at least an apple or some kind of fruit but i'm also not a coffee drinker so that makes mm. me a freak but for me it's like <laughs> i got i got to have that fruit that fruit fix so anyway huh. uh, my point is that's kind of my routine but i watch Kind of a daytime mood show. So hmm. for me, it's been Curb Your Enthusiasm. Are you familiar with Larry David? And yeah. Show? I don't
1: know if I've ever seen a whole episode, but I'm familiar with it.
0: Okay. So there are, I, it's, there's something ridiculous, like 15 seasons or something. So recently I got access to all of that. So right now I'm on season seven, halfway through. So during this pandemic, hmm. I've gone through. From season one now through season seven. And I still have half the way to go. But mm-hmm. the point is, is kind of like, well, there's multiple points here. One is that for me, there's like a daytime mood to watching hmm. something while I eat. The other thing is, well, let me stay on that to point. Because so when I eat dinner at night, I wouldn't want to watch Curb Your Enthusiasm at night. I want to watch something hmm. at night that's kind of exciting. You know, it's kind of like... You know, something kind of dark and twisted or like, you know, a kind of horror thing or like a mystery thing or just something, something to give me a little bit of an adrenaline rush because mm. it's almost kind of like, and you're right earlier when you, when you alluded to the fact that it's, these are all kind of substitutes, right? So yeah. it's kind of like if you equate it to, you know, you go to, you wake up, you go to the gym, you go to work all day. And then after that, you want to go on a date. Or, you know, there's hmm. this excitement factor of like a hookup or like, you know, sex or whatever else, you know, so, or going out with friends to a party or a club. It's like there's kind of, and I'm talking a lot about New York life, but, you know, there's kind of that mm-hmm. excitement in that time of day, you know, between 6 hmm. and 10 p.m. or something. So I think there is something to that. And for me, eating by myself at home all the time for both meals, the way that plays out in, is in terms of the entertainment choice that I hmm. you know solicit. So yeah. There's that, but so I wanted to make that point. I totally agree about the difference in mood and expectation for the different meals. But I also want to say like it is what you make of it, you know. So I've grown so accustomed to this mode of enjoying eating by myself and watching something and I might be multitasking, too. You know, I might be checking Pinterest or doing something on my phone as well. Um, hmm. So I like that feeling of being productive, but also enjoying the food. But I'm also not a foodie. I, mm. I reckon you might be more of a foodie than me. Even though I cook good food, I kind of don't really care about it in a way. Because for me, hmm. it's just like food is sustenance, you know. So yeah. I the fact that I try to eat healthy, but also the timing of it is... Um, you know, it's just a matter of like, look, you got to eat to live. So you may as well eat good food and eat healthily. But again, back to the stoicism thing, it's kind of like, I've accepted the fact that, and this is part of a larger thing. You and I, it's crazy because we're trying to cram so much into this because we we haven't really (laughs) caught up. We don't really know what's going on in each other's lives for the past 10 years. So again, I'm just, touching on in a nutshell way here but I've grown way more introverted and I've be, my life has become a mm-hmm. lot smaller and um, I don't know if you knew this but I lost all hearing in my right ear in 2016 I oh. don't know if you saw it. Yeah, I don't know if you saw me no. on, on Facebook but so I lost all hearing in my right ear in 2016 and luckily I got a lot of it back but
1: well that's good.
0: So, sort of one of the repercussions of that is I have permanent tinnitus. So I have this ringing in my mm. right ear. Forever, there's wow. no cure for it, so that's annoying. But also, the tinnitus gets worse, and I also have a hard time hearing because like I, I don't have full hearing in that ear. So if I go hmm. out to loud environments, to clubs, to restaurants, right. and all that kind of stuff, it can be a real struggle for me. So hmm. I to hear, you know, who I'm with. So whether it's a one-on-one yeah. thing or a big group thing, so I was already introverted and.
1: Hmm.
0: I don't know if you're more extroverted, I, I get the impression, but... Yeah, um, probably. <laughs> for, yeah. So for me, as an introvert, it's actually exhausting to be around people right. Right. All, all the time. So even when I go out, as much as I like to go out in New York City, it does take a lot of energy away from me the more time I spend out. So now that with you factor in the hearing loss... It's Mm. even that much more exhausting because I have to try harder. I have to try harder to hear hear people understand, have conversations. So I say all of that basically to make the point that my life has grown to be a lot quieter and a lot more solitary Mm. and a lot more. And I don't say that in a sad, you know, unfortunate way. It's a combination Mm -hmm. of like, this is the circumstances of life. We are adaptive beings. You know, human beings are highly adaptive. So it really comes down to some things are in your control. Other things are not in your control. But then it's like, well, what are you going to do about it? You know, like, Hmm. and I feel like we live in a society where everybody blames everybody else for their problems. Hmm. And I think there's way too much of that. And I think even in myself, when I was very unhappy in my early 30s, you know, I would blame God, you know, Mm -hmm. I would be like, why? I thought you know and, and there was various ways that this is played out and again you can go listen to the episode where I talk about my leaving the faith and all that but one of the points i made there was i was like look you know if it's not going to work out if it's not going to happen if it's not going to be you and me oh, sorry if it's not meant to be for me to be married and fall in love and have mm-hmm. kids then okay god if that's your will for me fine but please you be there with me through, you know, like let, let, let the, let Jesus be the lover of my soul as the songs go, you know, Hmm. fine. Let it just be me and Jesus. Let it be God and me. Like if that's what's going to sustain me. And I, my prayers sunk down to that level. I'm talking about when I turned 30, 31. So this Mm -hmm. was like 10, 11 years ago, but, Mm -hmm. um, that was the level I was at. And my net conclusion of it was like, no, I'm not, I'm not getting it. I'm not feeling it. So, Hmm. you know, so ultimately I just felt like I was talking to myself and, um, you know, talking to the ceiling and, uh, you know, it just wasn't really going to be sufficient to get me through life on my own. So Hmm. I've obviously gone through a lot of transformation in the past 10 years. And I only recently discovered stoicism, uh, Hmm. this past, this past year. So I don't, I don't want to completely derail, because we we're t- you were talking about food and the importance and the, the distinctions there. So I, I still want to come back to that. But why don't I leave it for there because I've rambled on a little bit here. But sure. stoicism Stoicism has really gotten me through this past year in the pandemic. And I feel like it's probably going to be my philosophy on life for the rest of my life.
1: Hmm.
0: But before I get all into that later, but I just want to say, it's really about, accepting things for what they are not being upset or sad or angry or frustrated about things you cannot control and you can't really Mm -hmm. do anything about instead focus on what you can control focus all of your attention there because that is what will actually generate a happy life for yourself Hmm. because you know you know I, I look at it for example Well, I would say Trump and all this stuff, and how my friends have lost, they've all lost their minds over it every day. But it's like, look, he just, he is the president right now. If you don't like it, you don't like it, but you can still go about your life and live your life. You know, you can still do things, or you can allow it Hmm. to completely toxify your utter existence, as they've allowed to have happen, and be Hmm. miserable every day of your life for four years. And I'm like, that's your choice. You know, you're allowing that to have that kind of effect on you. That's your choice. You are choosing misery. Yeah, and um, that's what I realized for myself. I didn't. Un- I didn't discover Stoicism until much later, till last year. But I realized when I was miserable and thirty, single, in the church, I was choosing to go to church. I was choosing to believe in that. I was choosing to surround myself with people who, you know, basically were. Racist in that form, but it's not the kind of mm. form of racism I would ever really want to call out, because it's kind of like, oh, you won't date me because I'm not white. Like, well, you're race. I'm like, eh, I'm not even gonna go there. You know, it's kind of like, but that's how I operate. Is like, I'm, I'm also not the guy to go return milk to the store that was spoiled. Like, <laughs> I'm just, you know, like that's an example It's a yeah. silly small example, but it's kind of like how I operate. Is like, all right, okay, I accepted the fact. Like, all right. I got spoiled milk, you know, whatever. I will factor that in now to my lifestyle choices, Mm. you know. You know, but that was a long tangent I went on about food (laughs) and the relationship and role of food in our life. But I want to give it back to you to pick up where you left off there. Also, you can add in any thoughts on anything I just said that whole time too.
1: Well, let's see. I mean, I think you're... Your question was sort of my expectations versus what I found, mm-hmm. and it wasn't like I necessarily went into it with a particular thesis mm-hmm. because it was more of an investigatory
0: Exploratory, project. I guess.
1: Right, but I was I was definitely surprised how much singleness played out in in our relationship to food, as I said. I do think one thing that was interesting was, despite how few people I interviewed from each culture, so therefore I could never generalize from any particular body of interviews about the country that those people were from, because I just didn't talk to enough people. But nonetheless... I found that pretty consistently across cultures, there was either a stigma about being single, or if there was not a stigma, you still didn't tend to have as much interaction maybe with people who were married. It seems like for single people to have a life that's really well integrated with people who are married takes a particular kind of mindset and intentionality. And, And yet, actually, I think that seems to be really important to thriving. How do you mean? And, well for one thing because I think it results in a different kind of stability and I actually first realized this when I was living in New York for those four years because the circle of friends that I formed had to do with my wanderings about the city and making different connections but it wasn't like I ever really for the most part found a pre-existing community or circle of people who were sort of in existence before I joined them. And Wait, didn't so if you, I ever you had join a small group? Yeah, but that wasn't my only community. You know, like I would like if I think about the people that I knew in New York City, they were kind of scattered across all of these different circles. And if yeah. I ever got those people together in the same room, it was because I invited them and I was the connection. Yeah, so same in here, that yeah. sense
0: Yeah
1: in that sense my community felt very unstable, because I was the only thing that tied all of those people together, for the most part. Right.
0: I wonder but if that's a anytime, very New York thing, though. Uh, it's kind of a la carte. It's an a la carte style to friendships and relationships. Because I experienced the same I thing. I would was, bring my friends I mean, together, and it's like, yeah, friends over here, and church friends over here. Right. And-
1: I mean... I would say a higher number of my friends in the Bay Area were people who were connected to my church, and there was more overlap there. But but the thing that I found though was, any time that my friendships included a married couple, there was more stability because they had a commu- they had a commitment between the two of them. And so, so suddenly they had a
0: built-in community among, yes between themselves yes. Yes. So every 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 other aspect of their community could be external to that. It could all be supportive to the two of them. Right? Is that well,
1: question? I mean, so my so my relationship with them felt a little bit more stable because they had a commitment to each other, which made it more likely that if I'm connecting to one, I'm going to be connected to the other in another way. Mm, like, I would often think about it like... A lot of proximate buoys on water, and occasionally you find buoys that have some kind of tether between the two of them, and any of those buoys that are tethered together are going to be more stable when a big wave comes through.
0: well, uh, how are you defining what do you mean by stable? I'm curious like
1: well, like literally i mean if you if you see it on water. You know, something that's not connected to anything, when a big wave comes through, like that buoy is going to kind of rock around a lot (laughs) more.
0: I understand the stability of a buoy or like a a structural thing, but I Uh mean, in terms of a married couple, being, you're defining it as stable. I'm just curious what you mean by that. Well, there's a lot of different ways to do that.
1: There's a greater cost for them to consider moving away, for one thing. Okay. Because... It's not just about one person's career or factors. It's uprooting at least two lives. And that's going to change things.
0: True, but, and I experienced this in New York, as soon as they have a kid, almost all of them leave New York City. Because it's too, it well, was too hard for a lot of them to raise a kid in New York City, so a lot of them would move away to the suburbs, New Jersey.
1: Actually, the friends that I, that I knew in New York who had the strongest sense of community there didn't have their kids until they moved to New York, but they were in Astoria the whole time. They're still there, and their oldest daughter is now probably at least halfway through high school. She's in high school for sure. They've stayed, and and we're still in touch. Okay. I guess, but I think there's something about a marriage that tends to lead to these things branching out where you kind of Stay in touch with people in a different way. There's a different sense of sort of history and connectedness there. And I think you see how much that's the case anytime that there's a divorce, because then that rupture often tends to affect more than that, just that relationship, you know. Like I had friends from college that I was pretty close to, I even stayed with for a few weeks when I first moved out to the Bay Area and they ended up getting a divorce after like 10, 11 years together. And I have not stayed in touch with both of them. I would happily be friends with both of them, but it's turned out that I'm friends with one person and not the other. And I have a feeling that in a way that whole network of friendships did kind of split in that way. (laughs) There's a Kermit Enthusiasm
0: episode about that, about Oh, all the friends have to take sides in a divorce. Right.
1: I think there's also just a different kind of peace of mind. For example, it plays out in things like holidays or traditions or not having... It simplifies certain things, maybe. Because maybe certain groups of people start to develop traditions, like...
0: And you get to be part we of have their traditions?
1: Easter, yeah maybe so. You know, I mean, even, even in a very small sense at the convent, it was this way because we were typically, say, eight to ten adults in the house. And there were things that got easier. Like you didn't maybe have to work as hard at having plans for some holidays because it was like, well, somebody's probably going to be home. And if there's enough of us, we'll probably just do something here. Of course. And so yeah. I think I think there was at least one holiday, maybe Thanksgiving or something. Or, you know, maybe it was Fourth of July. Whatever. But even uh, Maundy Thursday, there was at least one year that we had enough people. I was like, hey, do you guys want to just do a Monday Thursday together? And they're like, sure. So we did the liturgy and had a simple soup and everything and, and did that together. Yeah, Actually, I think that, that happened at least two years.
0: That, that's the benefit of communal living. But it requires
1: a commitment. That's my point. So is of the communal, communal
0: of the people living in that environment, was it mostly couples, or was it all mostly single people? What was the, the dynamic? It was a mix. It was,
1: right. a mix. it was a mix. There was mm-hmm. always at least, and I actually I had never lived with a married couple prior to that, with the exception of my parents, and like mm-hmm. occasions, a couple short periods where, like you know, a summer I lived with a family from church or something. But that was pretty early in my in my adulthood, but. I guess that's my point, is any sort of durable community involves some kind of commitment. And I think when you're all single, we're not as likely, it's not like it never happens, but I think people are less likely to make commitments to each other and say, like, we're going to take a vacation every year, or we're going to do this on a regular basis. Even if some of us move away. We're gonna to continue to gather in this way. It's not like that never happens, but that happens less commonly, I think.
0: I I hear what you're saying, but I, I think the distinction I'm I'm trying to ask you about here is because a couple has their thing and their stability. Mm-hmm. And that, what about don't you feel like a third wheel? Like they have their thing. It all sure, depends. I agree with you, but Oh no,
1: it all depends on their mindset. And I have some couple friends who don't in any way mean to exclude single people, but I've only been invited to their stuff when it's a large party.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And those were the only, but then I have other friends and these friends I've actually gotten quite close to who maybe invite me over if they have a dinner party or maybe they just invite me over. In fact, the family in California that I'm closest to, I stayed with them for a week early in their marriage, shortly before they got pregnant with their first child. And then we've just had this really special friendship ever since. And I mean, they've told me that I'm like a part of their family. And so for probably five or six years now, we developed this tradition of carving pumpkins together. And it was usually the wife and the kids and I. But, you know, there was at least one year the husband came home and And we had dinner in conjunction with that. And actually, this family and I have done at least a couple of Zoom dinners during the pandemic where we talk at our respective tables. (laughs) And, you know, I've even gotten on the phone a couple of times and talked to the kids if, like, they're in the car after I've been talking to the mom or something. Like, it's just a very different sort of thing. But I think the point is they don't see a part of their life... That, like, they don't assume that I need to have kids in order to interact with their kids. Which I think is often what a lot of married couples are thinking is, like, who's got kids that can play with our kids, right? Yeah, right. But, like, this family doesn't think about that. And they know that I have a relationship with their kids and I enjoy talking to their kids. Mm -hmm. Like, a few weeks ago, I had a great conversation with the kids, the oldest of whom is 13 and the youngest is maybe 6, where I presented to them, I said, hey... I got the stimulus check. I don't necessarily need all of it, but that means I have to decide how much of it do I give it away? How much of it do I give away? And to whom do I give it? Because there's a lot of really serious needs. And we had a great conversation where the kids each weighed in on how they would handle it. So I think it's just a different mindset. And actually it was their daughter that gave me a really interesting insight on singleness because I had been (laughs) struggling in a way with like, what is a social structure that accommodates both single and married people like that inherently does this. Okay. And the church ought to do that, but it often doesn't do that to the extent that it should. And so anyway, you know, the daughter was asking me about my research and I was explaining, Oh, a single person is somebody who's not married. And she's like, Oh, well that means I'm single. And I was like, well, yeah, but, you know, of course, I had been thinking of it in terms of adults. But then I realized later she's exactly right. The family already is that structure. It connects a married couple with other people. And really, I think the family can be a structure in which single people flourish And are very happy and do well and thrive if you don't think that it has to be a biological tie that always connects them
0: this is an interesting proposition you're describing here because on the one hand i'm like you got to understand okay so from my perspective when i hear things spoken about it doesn't matter whether it's politically socially familially any of these ways when i hear something described as an ideal I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie about this. Like I'm a fairly jaded person, right? <laughs> so having been through, it's like part of the struggle with me with the church and Christianity was like Tim Keller did a very excellent job of describing the ideal Christianity, hmm. and yet I lived in something that was completely else. It was hmm. just completely like not the ideal. And I get it. We don't live yeah. in a perfect world. It's never gonna. But existing between the ideal and hearing that preached Mm -hmm. every week and then living in this faraway thing that is not that led me personally to a lot of strife and a lot of sadness, a lot of frustration. So when I hear you describe this ideal, I can sit here and get behind it conceptually in theory. But -hmm. the whole time I'm listening to you say that, I'm thinking, okay, well, who's writing each other into each other's wills who's like you know when this shit hits the fan it's like who's really there for you or not Mm -hmm. and i don't i don't dismiss like you might have cultivated something very uniquely profound with this particular family that you've become a part of Mm -hmm. and it sounds like a beautiful thing and i think that's wonderful and i think you should if that's working for you, you should totally go for that um but My experience has been it's very difficult to cultivate that kind of thing. Uh, I've had very little success with that in the Christian church community in New York, or Mm -hmm. either before New York or after New York for me. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What I have experienced is I have to find solid individuals Mm -hmm. who, it's not even like they get me, but it's like, Okay, so with everything that's happened politically, you know, since 2016, mm-hmm. so with Trump starting with that and then this pandemic thing and, uh, you know, the race riots and all this stuff the past week, what I have seen is, and I've talked about this on prior introversion podcast episodes, about the role of social media now as a, as a surrogate, I mean, you and I were talking Mm. about eating alone with TV as a surrogate for having... Mm -hmm. Like, social media, when you're stuck at home, has become the surrogate for real in-person friendships and relationships with people. Mm. And what I've experienced is, like, wow, uh, I thought I knew a lot of these people in my life, but now I'm starting to realize... And again, this ties back in with my smaller life, my quieter life with the hearing loss and more introvertedness and more social isolation. Mm -hmm. Not as being a bad thing, but it is what it is. But it's kind of like, you know, I'm looking at my social circle and all of these people spouting so much hate and nastiness and vitriol. And it, it's gotten to the point where, look, you know, if you're angry and you're emotional and you've got a machine gun or a water hose or whatever, yeah. when you're spouting out and, and you're just losing it, in every direction you're not really thinking straight in terms of like oh you're actually shooting innocent people or like oh you're spraying innocent people you know or people who have who are neutral or think differently about you you know it's like you're yeah. you don't even care anymore because it becomes so much about your rage and your anger that you don't care who you take out and you will immediately demonize anybody who is not you know who you do not perceive as being on your side. Okay. So this is, and you might've tasted a little bit of this as well, but this is what I have seen and witnessed and experienced on social media, on Facebook. And it's left me in a predicament because on the one hand, you know, I'm an isolated person. I'm a freelancer. I do require connection and a social network with other people to find work, Mm -hmm. to, you know, to, to, to market the products and the projects I'm working on. Like I obviously, I, as lonely or isolated and introverted as I am, I still require the presence of other human beings. And I've spent many years developing friendships and relationships with a broad social network. And I don't necessarily want to just throw that out the window because I feel like mm-hmm. people are going apeshit crazy right now. you know. So I'm left in this weird predicament of, I'm not cool with how a lot of that's going down, but I don't want to just root out, you know, I don't want to just weed out, remove people like hundreds of people from my life that I've Mm -hmm. spent years getting to know. Right. But on the other hand, I'm realizing like, you know what? I'm starting to realize the people, and I don't just mean now in the last couple of weeks. I mean in the last couple of years. I've been starting to realize the people who really know me and I know them and the people who are going to be there for me you know, again, I'm still a skeptical person. I don't really mm-hmm. trust that everybody is going to jump on a plane and fly to, because I got diagnosed with cancer or something, you know? So I know there's various lengths that people will go to, to quote unquote, be there for you in your moment of need. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, I don't really expect anything from even my closest friends or people out there, like in that way. I know some of them would come through, but that's not my expectation. But The point is, is like, while I'm alive, while I'm healthy, while I'm, it's all about my mental sanity these days, you know, it's all about my creativity and productivity and happiness and joy in life. I do have a small subset of people of my entire 700 people social network. I do have a small set that I know and I trust and they know me and they trust me. And it's not even whether we agree on every subject. But it's more like I respect and value the way they think. And yeah. to me, to me, that's evocative of who they actually are deep down as a person. And I'll give you an example. I'll give you an example. Have you seen the video of the black guy with the camera and he, he flags down a white girl on the street in New York and he's like, excuse me, I'm, I'm from Black Lives Matter and it would really, you know, for you it would really mean a lot for you to get down on your knees basically and beg forgiveness and say, you're sorry for basically being white for your white privilege. Right. Wow. I haven't seen that video. Yeah. So I can, I'll send you the video and you can see for yourself. But I saw that and I'm like, this is not the way this is not the way. I mean, this, this idea of black people up, white people down, uh, in these kind of gross behaviors, I'm like, No, this is like vengeance. This is like you hated the fact that white people ruled back in the slavery days. And now you're kind of showing your true colors that if you were given the opportunity to take power, this is how you'll treat white people. This is how you'll treat the oppressed class. You'll want them on your knees begging. You'll dehumanize them. And when I see things like that, and when I see friends of mine supporting that kind of thing and that kind of rhetoric, I have to take a pause and be like, okay, um, you know, you're still friends of mine technically, but this is not sitting well with me. You know, like, I don't think you're basically the kind of person who, on a deeper level for the long term, you you know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, well, it's interesting because I'm thinking about something a very conservative relative sent me that was very much against confession of supposedly a sin you have no need to repent of, and I've been thinking about how to respond to that because from a biblical standpoint... There's an awful lot of talking about people who are too proud to humble themselves and repent. And I don't think there's a very strong precedent of, like, false or unmerited confession being a problem. But on the other hand, the scene that you're describing did immediately unsettle me. And I would need to think about why that is. But I think it's because even in the course of seeking justice, you might result in a situation which for a time is imbalanced. But that's because the ultimate goal is to achieve an equality that's never been.
0: It's almost like this is a backlash period of time that you think will fade and revert back to some sort of equilibrium that ideally would be healthier for all.
1: Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how to articulate it and I, I would need to think through further like why, why did the video that you describe make me feel uneasy when I do think that often confession is needed. But it seems like that scene was more about creating a particular power dynamic Mm -hmm. than it necessarily was about genuine repentance or heart change or seeking meaningful change to the broken places. Yeah. Like both of those people would feel an immediate change in the power dynamics, but that doesn't necessarily reduce the number of times that a black man is stopped by police just because he's black. See it these are these are these are it doesn't change whether or issues. not a woman is open to your advances. You know, like it doesn't
0: I think <sighs> these are separate issues though, and I think each issue needs to be dealt with appropriately in context. But flagging mm-hmm. down a white woman just because she's white and telling her she should get on her knees and beg forgiveness for being white, I don't, I'm not cool with that at all. And that doesn't mean that there are not traces of, of racism and cops and the system and all that stuff. There, this does not justify this is what I'm saying. Yeah. And this kind of rhetoric and this kind of behavior for me, as I described it, and I think you, you got it, you understood when you were talking about this is like a power mm-hmm. dynamic. And again, I said earlier, I'm a skeptical person. I'm very skeptical of, you know, you and I know we would put it in terms of sin, you know, and sinfulness of mm-hmm. mankind. The root of man, man's heart is sin, you know? So that for me, that's why we have checks and balances, you know, in the way our country was structured. It's kind of almost like inherently a given, the religious background that... They know man cannot be trusted. You know, that's mm-hmm. why we have three branches of government to check the other, you know. So that's why I'm like, I hear so much rhetoric now and this bending of the knee, literally bending of the knee. It's like we're in Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm.
1: They'll bend the knee or I'll destroy them.
0: And hmm. it's like, oh, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter. Oh, yes. Oh, you're going to get down on my knee. I'm sorry. And I'm like, okay. This is another example I, I thought of the other day. This is, if this is based purely on racial lines, which it is, J- Jeffrey Epstein, right? hmm So he committed all those, you know, atrocious sexual acts against minors, right? Mm-hmm. Awful, terrible human being. He did all of those sins and those crimes. He was white, okay? Yeah. So should I, should you, Anna, have to get down on your knees and say you're sorry or apologize for your whiteness or whatever way it wants to, you know, whatever whatever's demanded of you, should you have to essentially apologize for the sins of others? Or should I have to apologize? Should I have to get down on my knees to apologize? Because I'm a man. And Jeffrey Epstein was a man. Yeah. Different people are going to answer well, that in different you know, ways, but for me it's obvious. Right. No. You shouldn't have to get down on your knees. I shouldn't. I did not do but anything see, the wrong. Thing, I you know, I didn't rape underage girls and all of that. Yeah. So, I'm not going to apologize for something I didn't do.
1: I think there's a both and situation though. Because I was thinking about this like I grew up in a middle class but maybe somewhat lower middle class family. I mean, we didn't eat out in restaurants very much. And when I was a kid, we drank powdered milk because I think that was what my parents could afford. They were also very frugal. So that was part of it. But all that to say, I was trying to think about what are the advantages that I have inherited? So my parents put maybe, maybe $10,000 toward my college education and the rest of it I had to come up with. And I don't know if my mom's parents helped her with her education or not. But there were certain things, you know, like, okay, there were stable marriages on both sides. As far as I know, none of my grandparents was an alcoholic. So there were other things like that. And maybe...
0: So you have non-alcoholic privilege. Because you... Well, yeah. Genetically, so, 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 you know like inherit previous- predisposition toward alcoholism so that's a right privilege or you know if you want to call it that
1: well so so i guess you know like it's not as clean if i use my family as an example but like let's say for example that i live in a place where i find out that wealth that's been in my my family for a few generations is actually because My great-grandfather stole from your great-grandfather. Okay. And at some... You know, I could say on the one hand, well, I didn't have anything to do with that. Mm -hmm. Why should I have to do anything about that? But there was a theft that was never made right. And at some point, if I choose to accept that I'm going to receive the fruits of what once belonged to your family and should belong to your family now. If I accept to leave things the way that they are, I am in some ways choosing to perpetuate the consequences of that theft and making that inequality my own. And it's messy in this country Because we can't as easily and cleanly, in most cases, go back and trace that line. Mm -hmm. But it's been really sobering to realize the land that my grandparents bought once belonged to Indigenous people. You know, I think of that as like land that's in our family, that's one of the only things that we have. But it really hit me the last time I was back there, because coming to and from, I would pass signs for like, I don't know if it was a reservation, but, you know, one of the communities that's indigenous to that part of the state. And I saw it through different eyes, because I I had been up to Alaska. And my friend here has told me that his ancestors have lived on this land for 10,000 years. Like, that's kind of a mind-blowing statement. (laughs) If you live in this part of the world. Yeah. But I think that's part of the problem in the United States. A lot of us are where we are in part because of a lot of theft that's happened over the years. Theft of labor, theft of land. And I don't know what reparations look like. But I think we all kind of know on some level that's what happened. And it's very complicated and mixed. And, you know, even even my friend, on the one hand, his ancestors have lived here for the other hand. On the other hand, his other ancestors had a very different role. And some even participated in slaveholding. So it's very complicated. Yeah. But...
0: See, that's where I... Uh, let me interject here. There's a couple of things I want to say. One, yeah. one is... To your last point, it is, it is very complicated and it's so complicated that I don't think it's the kind of issue that can be solved by like writing checks and giving them to a certain group of people Mm -hmm. based on the color of their skin. Like that's just, it's not a solution, you know, if we're talking specifically about reparations at this moment. So, I mean, it, it, it's just, it's crazy. I mean, what if, what if Jay-Z is a descendant of slaves? Right. The guy's a billionaire. Mm -hmm. Right. So Mm -hmm. first of all, there's a question of where's the money coming from, from reparations to pay for it all. Right. So that's one issue. But then let's say, okay, they're just going to increase a certain tax on every American. So basically, okay, my dad who came to this country in 19, like late sixties with $7 Mm -hmm. and a suitcase, he is now going to pay to put more money in Jay Z's pocket. Now tell me, on what planet does that make sense?
1: Well, that but but see the point that Ta-Nehisi Coates made in the case for reparations was that we've not even attempted to talk about solutions. Like we haven't even had a debate in this country about what would be fair and equitable ways to attempt it and everything and anything. I mean, there hasn't even been a formal well, apology.
0: Yeah, that that <laughs> That's a no-brainer. That should happen if it hasn't right?
1: happened. Right? But, but yeah. we have... And so his point is we haven't even taken the most basic steps. Yeah. Never... You know, like there hasn't even been a formal inquiry at the end of which the group concluded, well, it's too hard to do anything. They didn't even have the conversation.
0: Yeah. There, there actually have been uh, discussions about reparations for several years now. So...
1: But not at the congressional level. That was yeah. his point. I Congress mean, has never formally taken it up.
0: Yeah. So before we go off on the topic of reparations, yes. I don't want, I don't want to, that's very complicated and I don't want to get on all that. But like, I want to, yeah, go, back yeah. to, I, I want to go back to, because this is very important stuff we're talking about, about personal responsibility and all of these things, the sins, you know, of others. And so I want to go back to your example. You talked about how you were talking about if your descendant, right? You, you said, if your great, great, great stole from my great, great, great grandfather. You feel mm-hmm. entitled, like somehow it would be wrong of you to go about your life now profiting off of that. And you feel like you, you owe me something, right? Mm-hmm. I want, so I want, to, I want to touch on that point. Um, what if, well, two things. One is, it's one thing if that's your personal choice to do that mm-hmm. because you feel like that would atone. It's another thing if that's forced upon you and you didn't choose to, to, to take that action, to, to, to give back to the person who you thought generations ago okay so there's that one distinction but then i also want to make this point what if your great 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 grandfather fought in the union on the side of abolition and wanting to free the slaves and died fighting to free the slaves mm-hmm. and now you're his descendant and you instead of honoring the sacrifice that your father gave his life for the cause instead mm-hmm. you're going to be uh apologizing for your descendant even though your descendant might actually be a hero who was on the right side of history mm-hmm. so the hypothetical you threw me it could just as well be the other case that what i'm describing here but we don't know all of these things for sure i mean well, some, and fa- I some families that's... probably can track back to their descendants and find out but Right. In terms of legislation and tangibly monetizing these things, I, I it seems unlikely to say the least, or impossible to, to to be to do it in a just way. So I wanted to say that. Think- and, the, and the other thing is, I understand the gesture of apologizing. That should have been something that happened a long time ago for the country officially to make a stance. I don't. I think they did that with Japan or something. Hiroshima. Mm-hmm. That's a no-brainer. That that should have happened a long time ago. But in terms of doling out a check, I can guarantee you, you could give whatever it is, $2,000, $5,000, $10,000, $20,000 to every black American family in America, whatever it is the case is. I guarantee you, one, that will not do away with crime, that will not do away with black on black crime in Chicago. It will not solve the issue of police brutality. It will not make racist people all of a sudden not racist. And I also guarantee you this, the people who receive the money, they will still complain about racism and they will still deal with racism in society. Like I said, it didn't go anywhere. And they will probably demand, not all of them, but a lot of them will demand more, like that wasn't enough, whatever it is they got out of the reparations.
1: Well, this is where, if you're talking about where something can happen most effectively, I don't know if we have an example of where it's been done well. I think there are some examples from Germany, perhaps. There may be some examples in Rwanda and other countries that have attempted to come back together after genocide. I think the most effective solutions are going to focus on healing a community, yeah, and that is going to involve a host of things. You can't take what's happening in the policing apart from what's happening in the banking and access to wealth in terms of loans. And you can't separate that from what's happening in the schooling and the tax base and, and the housing and segregation because that's a huge problem. That's a huge part of it. And the fact that neighborhoods are segregated means that police can operate in different ways in a different community. And I haven't finished reading it, but there's a really fascinating book called Ghetto Side by the LA Times reporter Jill Lovey, I'm not sure I'm saying her name quite right, where she follows a an, an Los Angeles Police Department investigator who's trying to solve a particular murder in a black community. And basically, what she finds is There's more crime in a community when people don't have confidence in the justice system. And it's a really interesting connection where when you're not treated fairly and your life is not valued and the police, you know, may think nothing at shooting you, but that also translates to them not usually caring enough, not always, but too often not caring enough to investigate your death and to bring to justice the people who are responsible. And so there's a very interesting connection there that she teases out in that book, which unfortunately I have not finished reading. Um, But, you know, I think any real meaningful change is something that has to be holistic, and that's probably never going to work with some sort of broad-scale plan because every community is different. But we need to also look at how are we... Bringing people out of incarceration in a way that they can actually become integrated into the community again. Yeah, we're not I thinking I mean, very much about that, but you know, like all yeah. you can't just you can't fix one thing and leave everything else apart. Right. It needs to be something that's working on all of those fibers together.
0: Definitely, I totally agree. Um, I mean, the nature of these problems is so complex that. I, I yeah, it's just it has to be a holistic solution. But that's why I mean this is my po- this podcast is not a podcast about activism and race relations and uh and police brutality. It, it's ended up being that for mm-hmm. the last couple of weeks, um but that's, <laughs> that's not what this podcast is. This is podcast is about life and um you know, relationships and happiness and joy mm-hmm. and meaning and purpose and all of these things. It just it happens to be about this right now, but one of the reasons why i like having the podcast is that exactly what we're doing right now this is what needs to happen and it needs to happen on a a national level on a global level and i believe in dialogue and the open exchange of ideas and people listening to each other and understanding people who are much different than them you know and uh, i think you and i are on the same page about that like it's all about a conversation it's all about listening to each other it's all about coming together with you know complex solutions to complex problems but mm-hmm. that needs to happen and unfortunately again like with all the rhetoric and a lot of the anger and hate and sort of knee-jerk vitriol is it's rooted in emotion. You know, and I, I don't see problems getting solved when they're so deeply rooted in mo- emotion. And that goes to any problem. Well, yeah. Like a, like a, a married couple fighting with each other or, you know, race relations for hundreds of years in this country. You know, it's like sober minds have to prevail, you know?
1: Yeah.
0: And, um, you know, that's what we're doing right now. We're talking about things, but, and I, I I am always going to be encouraging more people to talk about these things and, you know, try to look at these issues from all angles because it's, it's tricky. It's tough, you know? Um, unfortunately I, I worry that we're kind of living in a post-fact society and a post reason society.
1: That yeah. concerns
0: me. That concerns me when everything is just an angry mob and looting and rioting and, uh, Guns and shooting people. I mean, you you know, there's a lot of people who've died in the last couple of weeks since uh, Hmm. George Floyd with the riots. I mean, cops as well. Have you heard about David Dorn?
1: Oh, yes. I did see a little bit. I can't remember what city he was from, but yes.
0: It was in Texas. He's a 70-plus-year-old retired cop. His friend called him up because he was worried about his store. He went there to help out. And there's the video footage of it of black males... Going in there, looting the place, and they've arrested one of the guys, basically, for the shooting and murder of David Dorn, the officer. And on a number of levels there, I'm like, How come everybody knows George Floyd's name but they don't know David Dorn's name? You know, and he does he's a black life. Does that black life not matter? I don't see I don't hear anyone clamoring about, you know, from Black Lives Matter about David Dorn's life. You know, so these well, are Well, the tra- and
1: this is one of the tragedies about where we are at is that we have for the large part agreed on this false choice between whose death we mourn right because
0: i would say we should mourn for all lives than, all lives that i would agree i would agree and would yet, agree. And yet if you use the hashtag all lives matter online you will get lambasted like i'm a i'm a white supremacist uh, david duke nazi So (laughs)
1: Well and and that and that usually I think is misunderstanding the assertion that black lives matter or that indigenous lives matter. Because what's usually implied in that statement but not included is they matter too. And we normally operate as if those lives don't matter at all. And so
0: I, I would disagree with that. That black lives normally don't matter but now they do because people are using a hashtag. I, I would disagree with that.
1: I'm not saying that, but I think that's the spirit in which the statement was made. Like When people first began to say that, it was an articulation of the long-felt experience that their lives were treated as if they valued less, as if they mattered less.
0: Yeah, okay. So the birth of the Black Lives Matter movement, you're saying that was the uh thought process behind it, right? It was the this feeling that Black lives don't matter as much as other lives that people don't care.
1: Yes, and I've I've know. seen people say that over and over again that it's that it's in a sense it's it's parallel to if I were to say women's voices matter. Well, why am I saying that? If I say that, it's because there's been a sense that for a long time, women's voices have been silenced, that we haven't been listened to equally.
0: Well, yeah, there's uh, some interesting parallels there with the feminist movement, I guess, with the feminism and the racism thing. Sex, I should, Sorry, I should say sexism and racism. Mm-hmm. There's some very interesting overlaps there. But in some ways, no. <laughs> in some ways, not an overlap. Yeah, it's... Uh, I get what you're saying, like the, the birth of the moment. But the problem is, is a lot of these things... What is the expression? Uh, good intentions pave the way to hell. or The, hmm. the, road, to, the road to hell is I know is paid, what
1: you're talking about.
0: The road yeah, to hell yeah, is yeah. paved with good intentions. I think that's the expression, right? Yeah. So I think this is a good example of that, you know, is when... Fine. If that was the root of the Black Lives Matter cause, is that people aren't valuing black lives as much as other lives, I can understand the, mm-hmm. the, the impetus to start that movement. I get it. But when black lives, when when this is a thing that everybody, there's nobody on the planet now who has not heard about Black Lives Mattering right now. You know, I've gotten 800 emails in the past five days from every company under the sun. You know, like the black Lives <laughs> so, I can't go. I'm not even exaggerating. I wish I was, but it's like every twenty seconds I get an email. So everybody knows Black Lives Matter now. This is not this is not some under the covers thing that is a is a fringe thing. Everyone on the planet knows this now. So, mm-hmm. in terms of like our black voices being heard, uh, yeah, they are. You create a Twitter account, you tweet. You're being heard just as much as I am and just as much as a white person is. And honestly, for me, Twitter is like a dead medium because I tweet, Doesn't nobody hears it, nobody retweets it, nobody likes it. So I basically have stopped using Twitter the last few years because of that reason. But to my point, the channels of expression with internet and social media, in theory, are open to all you know mm-hmm. when is the last time you heard Facebook blocked a post or Twitter blocked a tweet because a person was black or because they were a woman please show me that since the inception of Twitter and Facebook and social media for the, show me one iota of an evidence where a black person was silenced because they were black, where they did not have a voice, or a woman was silenced because she was a woman. <laughs> you're not you're not gonna find it. No, that.
1: it didn't happen. But it's it is interesting though, because I think over time and we don't fully understand this. The algorithms nonetheless do privilege certain things. And even oh, yeah. if the algorithms don't me. I hate the algorithms, I think
0: I hate the algorithms because I'm like, I feel like my voice is never, it doesn't get out there anymore. Like my numbers have well, gone and, so far down in the last couple of years yeah. and I'm like, it's the algorithm, you know, but that's a, that, 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 that's not because I'm Indian. Sure. Right. Right. And, and unfortunately,
1: a lot of things privilege more extreme language and the clarity of what might be a more exaggerated claim. I mean, it's changed oh, the way that headlines yeah. get written. There's there's a host yeah, of click, things like clickbait, nuance. Clickbait. We live in a clickbait nuance society. Nuance and yeah. complexity don't fare well.
0: I couldn't agree more. <laughs> unfortunately.
1: But that's why, in part, I felt like this research was the right thing to do because. When we're only listening to the popular voices and the things that meet certain criteria, we leave out broad swaths of human experience. And it's my conviction that that results in a very distorted picture of the world. You know, for example, this isn't a great one necessarily, but I was in a church in the Middle East, and the pastor was preaching on the roles of husbands and wives from Ephesians 5, and so, of course, most of the second sermon in a series is about marriage. And finally, he remembers that there are some single people in the congregation. What does he say to them? Well, hopefully you can find a partner someday. Uh-huh. And I'm literally yeah. sitting next to a divorced woman in her late 60s, and... Later in the day, I will go on to interact with at least two other older single women. But his sense of who, what is, what singleness looks like has become so narrow mm-hmm. that he doesn't even have those people in mind. I know, yeah. Because if he did, he would have to wrestle with what that passage says to those women. Yeah. Surely... That passage doesn't just say, hope that you can be married. (laughs) (laughs) Right. You know? Yeah. But it's like you, you need to have a certain complexity in the kind of story that you are exposed to. And poverty being what it is and other factors like language and education, I realized there are some stories that I will only hear if i make the effort to go to those people i can't be limited to the stories that happen to come across my path mm-hmm. you know if i if i remain in in california or something now of course i was still limited by the fact that i am only fluent in english yeah and, and so that did limit what i heard but my hope is that whatever this research becomes It gives people a bigger picture of the world. Maybe it helps Christians see themselves less as being part of a national church and more as part of a global community. And I hope that even people who aren't Christian would maybe recognize things about their life that they didn't see before. And if they're single, maybe see their own life differently. Or if they're married, perhaps see... A potential for different ways that they could connect with some of the singles in their lives, not just Hmm. any children they've had, perhaps.
0: It's interesting to think about because, like you and I both agree, the church has kind of done a terrible job in terms of addressing singles. So, Mm -hmm. as a form of outreach, I don't think I don't think I don't know that many secular people out there who are lonely or would. I don't think they would find the answers to their singleness problems in the church. Because it's like you no, and I. No, but are, what's
1: really
0: interesting. You but and I have really frustrated Christians within the church. Or the 68 year old woman you were talking about there with that pastor. It's like there's so many. You and I agree. I mean, you're you what you were talking about. Yeah. The church has not done a good job addressing single life. And I think I'm glad. I'm actually glad you brought up that example because that's a really great succinct description of it. the mentality is like oh, okay well you know just until you meet somebody and get married that's the name of the game
1: but it's not biblical Yeah, it's just not and so that's the interesting well, thing it isn't, is it is it's not it depends
0: it depends which it's verses, not, it com- for this reason you know a man and woman should you know join and you know all that stuff so it, it depends which verses you choose to focus on and obviously the typical traditional church has chosen to focus on these verses over here and they've kind of ignored these other verses over here you know but yeah. that's also a big part of my beef with Christianity and the church and the bible is that but, there's but so as, much of that cherry picking to construe a, a certain narrative
1: sure but but as a woman as an Australian woman named Danny Treweek argued when I spoke with her in Sydney a little over a year ago The trajectory in the Bible is towards singleness for eternity. You can't deny the (laughs) fact that Jesus says there will not be marrying.
0: That's interesting.
1: In the future. So, yes, there are verses praising marriage, and yes, there are verses praising singleness, but the church has not reckoned adequately with the Bible's ambiguity. On singleness versus marriage in the present. And actually, I will say, there were a number of cases, like even if their local churches didn't always affirm this, I talked to a number of Christian singles who did feel empowered within their culture to live for God as single people, because they understood that the Bible says, ultimately, our purpose is supposed to come from seeking the kingdom of God, not from marriage. Mm-hmm. And so though Christians did not always find that affirmed in the local church, people who read the Bible for themselves did find that very empowering and meaningful, even down to an indigenous Australian woman I interviewed who went through the very painful experience of having her Christian husband leave her when he wanted a different relationship. It was the sense that she had calling and purpose and a very strong conviction that God wanted her to continue working on a translation project to translate more of the Bible into her language. That gave her a sense of purpose apart from this marriage that was crumbling. And it was really remarkable to see how that anchored her through this very profound crisis so that now almost 20 years later She's become more of a leader in her community and more and more people are coming to her and seeking advice. And and she's a somewhat rare example of a single person who has a sense of narrative arc and direction in her life. Not necessarily in full-time ministry, but she has that meaning and purpose because of her relationship to God and the understanding that he has work for her to do. He's got a job for her, in a sense. And, you know, for a time marriage was part of that. Now it's not. But ultimately, the people that I talked to who had the strongest sense of sort of direction and meaning and purpose and peace about where they were at, even if they wanted something different for their lives, it most strongly came through when they had a clear understanding of how they could be serving God and helping to make the world a better place in whatever small way that happened. Whether it was a a poor Indian widow in New Delhi who was maybe getting like $50 a month from the government or something, to uh, a man living in London who's, you know, at that time, a real sort of high-flying consultant traveling around the world all the time. There was a consistent sense that for Christians they could find a sense of purpose through seeking God's kingdom that wasn't just about a high-flying career necessarily. And it wasn't just about marriage and family, but that they could find meaning and purpose apart from relationship. Yeah. And the I'm, Bible I'm, gave them that.
0: I'm glad for those individuals who were able to carve out that path to meaning and happiness and purpose in life. I do have a theory that I feel pretty solid about. <laughs> so in terms of why the church does what it does and the mm-hmm. way they, you, I mean, you and I are in agreement. They really push the marriage thing and all signs point to marriage. And if not, well, get back on the horse and it'll happen. And God's timing. And just, you know, that is the message we get from the church and not just you and I, but, uh, everybody. You know, that's pretty pervasive for not just our, our generation. I think this has been happening for a long time. And my theory is, well, you know, if you think about it, humanity would die out if everyone was single and getting abortions and was gay and transsexual. And that might be an offensive statement, but it's, it's pure science. If, if literally everyone on the planet was not having kids, there would be no more humanity. So mm-hmm. um, so, in the context of the church and Christianity and religion, and this is the same principle, same theory for Islam as well.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How is Christianity going to best grow? Well, you have to fill the, uh, fill the pews, fill the aisles with more and more Christians. Well, what's the best way to have more and more Christians? Well, a married couple has many kids. And they raise their kids to fear the Lord and become the next generation of Christians. There's no shying away from that. Everybody will come out and admit that's exactly how they want to raise their children. So this is—it's not even a theory so much as I'm just putting the pieces together here. So I agree it, that that's been a common to,
1: way that that people try to do that. But I'm not necessarily convinced that the Bible itself.
0: Oh yeah, shows yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not even way. talking about the scripture here. I'm talking about. Yeah, church. Uh, I'm just just looking at what we've experienced and giving... Pragmatics. Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm just giving a reason as to why things are the way they are. And uh, to me, that seems pretty clear. Get married, have kids, be fruitful, multiply. This is the way Christianity will actually grow. I think I saw some statistics before where Islam was actually the fastest growing religion. Mm. And um, I'm not surprised when they're the ones who are getting married and they also have a more oppressive religion toward you know like women don't have rights the way they do in western society yeah so you know if, uh, if the husband if we gotta get married and i want you to have eight kids she's gonna have eight kids you know she doesn't really have a say in the matter the way the migrant movement and all of that spreading into europe islam is on the rise you know is it because of theological doctrine? Is it because it's the one true religion? Is it because what what is the reason? Well, they're the ones getting married and having kids the most. So you know, same goes for Christianity. And I I see why there is an impetus to stress get married. And they can pick out the scripture verses that support that agenda. So that's kind of how I see things, why they don't really encourage (laughs) they wouldn't encourage singleness in the church because there's not going to be another generation of Christians coming up if, uh, if everybody's single and not getting married and having kids.
1: Well, the only way there'd be a generation is if you actually go out and do the work of telling people about Jesus. (laughs)
0: Which, which the so church, maybe, which maybe the church does do. This is our
1: laziness.
0: No, 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 no. I mean, the church does do that to varying lengths, depending on which church you're talking about. But they do go out and proselytize and try to share the good news, the gospel. But I would love to see the statistics. I would love to see the data on how many people are converted into being real Christians in modern society via outreach versus how many people are grafted into it from age 0. Hmm. Again, I'm going out on a limb here, but I would put my money on, you know, I think the most of the growth of the church has to do with young children being raised up in it as opposed to the outreach of adults.
1: But it it may only be a short-term growth if in fact those people don't remain in the church as adults. Somebody who converts well, yeah, is, but I think that's what is that's probably what more likely to that's remain. What
0: that's what we're seeing though. We're seeing declining numbers certainly in Europe. People who identify as Christian has been going down for decades. So it is becoming. Yeah. It is, already has become a very secular society in Europe, and uh, I, 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 I believe it happening here in America as well. So I mean, we have blue state, red state kind of thing. You know, we have conservative Christians, and we have all of the other secular atheist people out there. So you look at the numbers, you know, the data, I'm like, again, I'm a very skeptical guy. Same thing when it comes to COVID. I, you know, I want to look at the data. I want to see what does the data tell us, you know? And I want to look at it as reasonably as possible and as objectively as possible. Like, look, in terms of Christianity, I'm out of that, I'm out of that game. So it doesn't really matter to me. I don't have a stake in it either way. I'm just curious what's actually true.
1: Well, I will say this, and then I got to go, but I do think when you're looking at data, it's also extremely important to look at the ethnicity of the church, because the sociologist Michael O. Emerson has done some very, very interesting research on the makeup of monoethnic congregations versus multiethnic congregations, and the more ethnically diverse the churches he found, though that's a relatively rare state, unfortunately... Those churches also tend to have more economic diversity, and I would argue they're probably churches that are going to be more attractive to skeptics and more more inclined to bring in converts because people will see... A love that binds that community together that is not an ordinary thing. Because we know it is our natural tendency to congregate in tribes based on similarity. And any time a community manages to form across substantial lines of difference, as multi-ethnic churches do, there's obviously a different kind of love binding them together. So I do think... Any data that you're looking at has to take that into consideration because, oh. in his book *People of the Dream*, Emerson shows that there are real differences between mono-ethnic and multi-ethnic churches.
0: It's an interesting point you raise because, like, it's it's true. What what I would love to see, what you would love to see, is like we can look at Redeemer as a church, but like, okay, are we gonna would we describe Redeemer as a diverse church? Like what we're talking about, both ethnically, racially, and socioeconomically. I would say, eh, not so much. Don't you think? No. Yeah. So, um... Yeah. Given it is what it is, you're saying most of the churches out there are black churches and Korean churches and a largely white church in the South. Monoethnic. Yeah, monoethnic, right? Monoethnic. So so you're saying that is the majority of churches... And it would serve as a That's better... Emerson's
1: finding. I think it's still less than 20% of American churches are multi-ethnic. And he has a wow, that's a crazy. metric that's for staggering. defining what that actually means. It, it might be as few as like 16%. Oh, I can't wow. remember what the most recent numbers were. Yeah. <laughs> I was it's giving really the damning. Church, I
0: was giving the church more credit. I, I thought at least maybe 30%, 40%. Wow. Oh, no. Oh,
1: that no. That is abysmal.
0: So... Well,
1: I've got some thoughts on that, but I can't talk much longer, unfortunately. So I, okay. I don't mean to break us off. We could obviously no, talk a yeah, lot longer, this but has I, been great. Have to let's
0: um, let's wrap it up here, and I would love to have you back on uh, sometime sure. soon, and we can get into we can do our, our sort of half catch up, half discuss issues in society thing again. <laughs> and it's cool, you know. It's like hitting on multiple fronts. I dig it. Nice. I hope this has been enlightening for you. The Introversion Podcast is on its way, but we've obviously got a long way to go to get to where we want to be getting to. I will certainly be doing my part in cranking out new episodes every week, but here's where you come in. If you haven't yet done so, hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you're currently listening on. That way you can obviously get notified as soon as new episodes arrive. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please please, 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 give a five-star rating. It just takes a second, and it will empower the introversion podcast to rise up and conquer the suppression of algorithms that would otherwise crush this fledgling podcast into unknown oblivion. So yeah, please leave a rating, and even better, an actual review. Just a few words expressing what you dig about the podcast honestly would mean the world to me and would really help provide the motivation to keep this baby growing. Also, I'd love to hear from you at any time. Comments, questions, or if you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, send an email to podcast at introversion.com. You can also connect with me on social media. I am Jay Caslow. That's J A Y K A S L O. On Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, pretty much wherever. I really want the Introversion Podcast to be something special. Raw, informative, entertaining, experimental, inconceivable, enlightening, therapeutic for you and me. Let's keep the conversations going about a range of topics that affect us all. Let's rise above all the hate and sickness and sadness and strife that plague this world. Let's seek to better understand each other and ultimately live our best lives. Seriously, let's do this thing. Thank you. Goodbye now. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you. Goodbye.